And to go to prayer, I'm going to read first from Psalm 136, 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone doth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a magnificent God, and your name is great in all the earth. You spoke the worlds into being and stretched out the heavens by your might of your great power. You have established your strength from everlasting to everlasting, and the heavens are the work of your fingers. You looked down in mercy and grace on the children of men and sent the eternal Son of yours to visit us and redeem us. We rejoice in your gracious love and great compassion. We sing your praises forever and ever, for you alone are worthy to be praised and worshipped. We now are in difficult times when men and governments are turning away from you and your word and doing so under their own strength. Give us the strength to endure these difficult times. We pray for comfort, support for the storm victims in this country, Lord. We also pray for the, the missionaries that have been held captive in Haiti, some of whom are released. We pray those who still remain in captivity, that you'll protect them, keep them safe, and work for their release too. Lord, keep us and help us to remember that your mercy endures forever for us who believe in Jesus. Thank you for all the many blessings you have already and are continuing to pour out onto those who love you. We pray for those among us who are suffering. We pray for their comfort and peace from your Holy Spirit. Come be with us, inspire us, and lead us in your time together. And as we hear our, what Jacob has to share with us from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. morning, everybody. Uh, the scripture reading today is in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, and then 17 through 21. So I'll give you a second to turn there. <clears throat> and then if you could stand in honor of reading God's word. <clears throat> so uh, chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Well, good morning. 
It's good to hear from the Gregories. Um, it is amazing how, how God has been gracious to us as a people to know specifically individuals that are going abroad with the gospel. Um, think of them during this Christmas and as they're watching even now. Oh, we love you. No, I'm not growing a beard. Um, some of us have different gifts. Uh, <laughs> and it's not, not my ambition in life for sure. Uh, but yes, uh, what a joy it is to know that among us, God has raised up those who were sacrificed for the gospel. Um, I want to invite you guys as well, extend to anyone online, those who are, except for the Gregories, but on Friday, we're having an open house um, Christmas um, pl- uh, event at our house um, between, oh, it's in the bulletin, between five and nine. We'd love to have you just to come fellowship. We'll have hot chocolate. Um, you can have some um, and some cookies. And we just would like to celebrate Christmas with you and invite you. Um, I think it is good to enjoy one another and uh, to celebrate what Christ has brought in the midst of, uh, of our own sin. He has brought grace, and we're so thankful for that. We're going to finish Romans 12 today. Well done. To stick along throughout this process. And uh, the topic is uh, one that we'll all be confronted with, whether presently or in the future. And so with that in mind, I pray that you would um, consider it with me. So I'd ask, let's pray one more time. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you do give us, even that while we were your enemies, even though while we uh, sinners, enemies of God, haters of God, lovers of men, willing to sacrifice and suffer for our sake, bore our iniquity, was faithful to accomplish it, like a sheep led to the slaughter, you did not open your mouth. And yet, in light of the salvation that we've come to inherit in Christ by faith, the same standard now applies to us that we've seen modeled in Christ. To not be overcome by evil, but to come overcome evil with good and how that goes contrary to our self-preservation. And so, Lord, I, I recognize that even the word persecution often sounds like an international, something not in this country reality. But we know that is not true. Because the words which Paul says here are echoed by Christ. They're echoed by Peter. They're expected for the beloved. And so Lord, as we recognize the realities that we once, once or will face or do face presently, Lord, I pray that uh, Christ would be at the forefront of our mind to do good. Not to come to our own defense, but to, to, to model Christ in those situations. And so let us consider these things well in the light of Christmas, what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul expects it, as I've said, and I prayed, so did Christ. Those who strive for righteousness will be persecuted. Uh, Paul stresses, and I think it's interesting, as we walk through the letter of Romans chapter 12, uh, he has layered to the Christian ethic a lot of things of how we respond to one another, how we love one another, how we're gracious towards one another. And I want you to notice that at times he, he deals with them really quick. Like, be devoted to prayer. 
devoted to brotherliness, um, to brotherly love. He talks about uh, being generous, and they're like these Christian ethics that are put in like three or four phrases, word phrases. They're not long descriptions. But when he comes to this issue, at the tail end of Romans chapter 12, he commits six verses to it. Up to before this, it's just one after another after another. But here, when he has to deal with a Christian's relationship to the world, to those who do not walk within the faith, he commits himself six verses of how the Christian is to respond to persecution in the life that they live. In fact, you can see it, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil. Again, verse 19, never take your own revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. He, he says it three times with this three emphasis as if maybe we don't believe it or we're going to struggle with this reality. In fact, he even appeals to the emotional issue of the brotherly relationship that Christians have towards one another. He uses this connection in verse 19 to stress. Never take your own revenge, beloved. He knows and he appeals to the connection that they share in Christ that this is going to be reality that they might endure. Jesus, not just Paul teaches this, not just Peter teaches this issue, but Paul taught, or Jesus himself, as he was discipling his, uh, the apostles, he, he reminded them of this reality in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, as if he has said it repeatedly as himself towards his disciples. A slave is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as also. Now understand, like if we lived in the Mesopotamian area or in a community where Christianity was not as popular as we might find in America we tend to think that the persecution might be uh, harsher there, and that might be true. But Paul acknowledges, even for the beloved, that all who strive to live for righteousness will be persecuted. There's no exception to this reality. Paul himself, when he writes to Timothy, as the gospel is going forth into the world, he says in the closing words, his last letter that we know, he reminds Timothy, indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can find it everywhere. As I've said it already. Those who strive for righteousness, for godly living, will find find themselves swimming against the current. I tend to, as I look through it, and I consider even the missionaries in Haiti that have been dealing with the situations or people all around the world and the conflicts that they endure, there's this temptation in my mind to equate that that's what persecution is. And indeed, persecution can be physical. As the scriptures teach, like Matthew 24, 9. Then, as Jesus was teaching the disciples, that then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. It can be physical, persecution. But we're not to be naive that that's merely all that persecution is. Persecution takes many forms. It can come in the form of ridicule. Just as Jude, he writes, in the last days there will be those who mock those who hold to the faith. 
In 1 Peter 4.4, 4, he teaches, In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. They, they defame you. Persecution can take in the form of just uh, dishonoring your own character for the way that you walk. You don't participate in the things that, that, that you once did. Persecution can come in the form of slander. Peter touches this on this as well in chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, as they, might because of, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Persecution doesn't need to be merely physical to be persecution. It can be a ridicule. It can be a slander. It can come in the form of a threat. The disciples face this often as the gospel is going forth, even in Jerusalem. Acts 4.18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them, the Pharisees, not to teach or to speak at all in the name of Jesus. And there's these harsh threats in which if you do this, we're going to have to get more uh, threatening, in which they did. Today it comes across in a different way, right? If you do this, you will not be my friend. If you teach this, within the classroom or if you which you practice this in the workplace then you will be eliminate you'll be fired or let go persecution can come in the form of threat slander uh, it can also come in the form of betrayal i read this example i think there's enough to show this but matthew ten twenty one, it shows a betrayal even unto death brother will betray brother to death and a father his child And his children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Persecution, as Paul talks about and the scriptures talk about, is to be expected for those who strive for godliness, for righteous living. Question is, as as we think through it, is have we considered for ourselves how we'll react when it comes? Spouse becomes a Christian. Don't know how... Their life is going to be changed, but they find themselves making new acquaintances, new friends, and start worshiping with the beloved on Sundays, only to be opposed by their other spouse. Why do you do this? A former employee who once acted one way now no longer participates with his other employees in the things that he once did, admitting to his previous wrongs by doing so brings those down with him that he did that with before. Those who strive for righteousness will find themselves at one time or another facing persecution, whether it be slander, threat, betrayal, and sometimes, yes, even physical. The present world, uh, this is why I think Paul is spending six verses to stress this reality, is that Christians anticipate this reality. I bring this before our attention because parents... We have a responsibility to teach our children. In fact, I have a responsibility. We, the scriptures, have a responsibility to teach ourselves. How will you respond? I remember being on the playground when the boy hits you. How does a Christian respond when you've been slandered? Your character or lies been told of you by gossip. How will you respond in that time? There's a word in here. Verse 17 which says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That term respect has this careful, uh, maybe, how do I, 
it has this idea of right thinking. It's, it's contemplating beforehand how you will respond in the event that might be right in the sight of all men. So, so we as those who are of the beloved are, are already anticipating how will we respond when we face the persecution. There's, there's right thinking that takes place before the event takes place. And Paul, this is why I think he spends six verses to equip the beloved. How do you respond to those who commit evils against you? I think this is extraordinary practical. Because the reality is this. But we've come to realize in Romans, if we were just go back to the very beginning of the chapter, even in verse 2, Paul commends the, commends the church, the beloved, do not be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We're like a fish that's now changed the direction that we swim, and now we swim against the current, And that very lifestyle, the very practice, it's not a searching out opportunities to be persecuted, but rather the swimming against the current creates the persecution. As we will come to see, Paul says as he walks through this, as we will walk through this, anticipate it. And think how you might respond to it. So with this, I would like to make our first point be give careful consideration to this. Already hinted at this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect. Begin even now thinking how you respond in the moment of evil towards those who have committed. Not to exchange evil with evil, but rather to act in a way that is right in the sight of all men. Uh, There's this idea that Paul lays out here in that when a man is punched, even our own society who walks by the pattern of uh, their own minds, but there is this common perception that it is right not to punch back, but that it is better to withhold revenge. It's just a social acceptance, I think, that people perceive this this reality. That we are already thinking to exchange evil with evil accomplishes very little. In fact, Paul is calling us to not exchange evil with evil in the moment that you've been slandered, not to exchange that evil with more slander. Or when you've been given a threat, uh, to exchange that evil threat with another threat. When it comes to exchanging gossip, which is goes against everything about our self-preservation. When you find that your character is being lied about, everything within our self-preservation is to react in kind. And Paul says, teaching, it doesn't matter, I, I might even underline it in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, even if you don't like them. I imagine that there are some people that we're more loyal to. But the loyalty doesn't mean that we get to respond with unequal treatment. No, the the standard is everyone, even those whom we might not appreciate. We do not exchange slander with slander or gossip with gossip or blow with blow. But rather we have given right thinking, premeditatively, that's a word, but with already anticipation that when we are slandered, how we might respond in the hour of temptation. 
This is how the beloved will be marked. You'll be marked with this reasoning that anticipates it and is able to respond in the moment with right perception from those who witness it. And Paul says, give careful attention to this. In fact, as we go along, he says, in, uh, we can, in fact, you can see this teaching even in Christ himself, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When you're on the playground, tooth for tooth, slap for slap, word for word. That, that's the, the standard. But Jesus said, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. That takes thinking ahead to respond in a situation like that because if you've ever been slapped or been bullied, I know with everything within you what you want to do. Christian ethic is you do not exchange blow for blow, but rather you respond in a way that is right in the sight of all men who are watching. Romans 12, 17 through 18. Look at the standard here. If possible, so far as it depends on you, yes, you may face people who are unreasonable. The standard for you When you meet an unreasonable person who's regularly giving and exchanging evil with evil or giving evil after evil after evil so far as you be at peace with all men. That's the standard in which we recognize that there is this this temptation within all all humanity for self-preservation. The standard which Paul says it three times. Never, never, do not. Why? Because I think we need to hear that. Remember the words which Jesus even said in John 15, 20. Remember, remember, a slave is no greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I think we have to consider one's willingness. Like there's this attitude within the Christian life that is willing to be wronged. We're willing to be wronged. And in that moment, we recognize something by the grace of God within the gospel, God is able to reconcile towards individuals that have been wronged. For we have wronged God. Yet in that moment, in that position, God reconciled to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the means for a right relationship. Persecution, like, there's some people out there that want to go find it. Right? Like, because Paul says, all those who strive for godly living will be persecuted. Well, let's go find it to verify our faith. I don't think that's what Paul is suggesting. He's suggesting, as Christ would, I think, also implore, is that by living righteous living, you're going to face persecution. Jesus, I would even argue, didn't search it out. It actually confronted him as he lived out the righteousness of God on earth. For example, Matthew 12, just one scenario. In chapter 12, he's gone to the synagogue. And as he's gone to the synagogue, those who are adamantly opposed against him confront him. Chapter, 10, chapter 12, verse 10. A man was there who, uh, whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The purpose of all this, they're ultimately asking, Is it good to do good on the Sabbath? 
so that they might accuse him. They want to find him wrong. They recognize that the crowds are following him. He has great followings, and so they're trying to discredit him. They've approached him as he has lived out the righteousness of God on earth. And so he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Their intentions, the way that they were swimming, found that Jesus was swimming against their current. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But when the Pharisees saw this practice, went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew. As far as it was possible with him, be at peace with all men. You'll see this in the life of Christ where he faces a conflict and he would say, no, not my time, not my hour for the Son of Man to pay for the iniquities of sin. And he withdraws. He doesn't stand his ground to make a fight. Even Peter, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out the sword ready to fight for his king. And Jesus says, put the sword away. Who lives by the sword, dies by the sword. Christ was willing to be suffer, to suffer. Christ was willing to be wronged. And that character takes its form by the Spirit in the Beloved. We will be wronged. When you live the righteousness of God on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will face opposition in the midst of, your world, of this world. This is why Paul commits six verses here. This is why Paul tells Timothy, you will be persecuted. Think about it. In the hour of time when it comes, how will you respond? Will you exchange evil with evil? Slander with slander, gossip with gossip, gossip, blow with blow. No. Paul says, never, never, do not. Three times ever exercise this reality. Verse 19, why? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Christian realizes this. Let me clarify. Not just the Christian. God's people historically know that vengeance is not our stewardship. We have been given many things to be stewarded with. We've been, been gifted with generosity, with serving. Some of us are better at exhorting. Some of us are better at being diligent and being showing mercy and being joyful and and doing many different things, but the one thing the church has not been stewarded with is the vengeance of God. That's somebody else's responsibility. Maybe it's a bad example, but I have to struggle with this all the time with our kids, or not our kids, kids in general, generalize it. Um, the reality is, is that often taking responsibilities for somebody else's actions, that's not your responsibility. But they, that's not your responsibility. Who's the parent, Right? When it comes to God and it comes to vengeance, the church has done historically a very bad job of handling the sword of vengeance. In fact, Paul is trying to remind us again, that's not yours, it's God. And in fact, when God exercises it, it's right. And when he does it, it is done so profoundly well, none says that was wrong. And so within the beloved, when there is evil, 
there's this sense of being willing to be wrong, but at the same time trusting oneself in the very righteousness of God, that he can deal adequately with that slander, that persecution, rightly before all people. In fact, I didn't provide it for this morning, but in 2 Thessalonians, Christians are dying for their faith. The Paul encourages them, we know who sits on the throne, and when he comes back, he will exercise his vengeance. And it provides the Christian community, what's your responsibility now? To exercise the mercy of God before his vengeance. Yet in one side, they exercise the mercy of God, pleading with the world, be reconciled to God through their willingness to suffer yet at the same time hoping in the day in which God will satisfy their wrong being committed against them in his vengeance. The standard is do not, do not, never, never trust and rest within the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, who deals with it much better than you would. Bad example, but when I got older in age, like there was a point when my mom would spank me and for some reason, I understood the limitation of her ability. And one time I laughed after I was spanked. Bad idea. And she would use these words since then forth. Wait till your dad gets home. What a terrifying phrase. Why? Because dad's arms are way bigger than mom's. And there was a, a reverent fear of the discipline of my father. And in the same way, Christians realize this reality. We trust in our Father. And His vengeance is good. His wrath is good. And light, even as His time, even now, being merciful to those who persecute His beloved. Never, never, do not. Those who strive for righteous living will be persecuted. So rest knowing that God will come to your aid. In the hour in which he returns. Vengeance is his. It's not his. That's the point. So what are you to do? Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry. This goes contrary to everything that wishes in my self-preservation. Feed him. Right? The, the Christian life is so marked. Even by Romans chapter 12. Up to the beginning. And the way the beloved reasons its life. Its practice towards one another. Is so unconcerned about the self. It's always concerned about the other members, new members. The mark of a Christian life is to be loving one another. Less concerned about yourself, but for the concern of others. And so is that perspective towards the world outside of us. Even when you are marked with persecution or wrong, you are to serve him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing... You will heap burning coals on his head. I find that is a fun thing to do. I'm serious. Well, maybe that's part of my sinful nature. But, but I remember I was in Spokane. We were, we were moving to Texas. And we had a U-Haul trailer hooked up to the minivan that we were coming to drop off here in Tri-Cities before we drove down to Texas. And I was parked appropriately in a parking spot and somebody backed up into the U-Haul. Oh, that person was mad. They got out. They started yelling at me and cursing at me. And I was like, I was just parked here. Um, and she, she gave me her thoughts. And she walked away. And I thought to myself, oh, I wanted to exchange evil with evil. I, 
And I said, ma'am? She turned around, what? I said, I hope you have a good day. And it so dislaunched her. And she, and she settled down. The ability to do, well, I'm not praising myself, but it felt good. It was like a punch of kindness. <laughs> but we're marked by, like, our sword is different. Like, uh, evil, it exchanged blow for blow. One of the most powerful things that the church, the beloved, has is our word. The way that we speak towards one another, the way that we address one another, it's powerful. And so often, we want to get even. And by doing kindness, by doing good, I do think there's some good enjoyment out of it that, that they might see that we're burning coals of kindness upon their heads and it diffuses them of realizing their own position. Paul, in six verses, never, never, do not. Those who strive for godly living will face persecution. And when you do, give, give thinking ahead of, of how you might respond that those who watch might see it right. So as far as it depends on you, be at peace of all men. So now what do we do from here? Like I thought, like what I like to do is go through a theological, through this section, go through a theological review of what Paul is teaching and then apply it to a story which we see within the scriptures. And a passage like this, we could go we look at Paul, we can look at Peter, we can look at Stephen as we looked last week, of men who, who strive for righteous living and lived in facing persecution. But I want to stress, and so often I think we do this, and I hope this works, point to our just giving further consider, consideration to this perspective. I think there's this, this fusion within all Scripture where you see the interlocking of these truths. Sometimes we can separate the Old Testament from the New Testament that, that there's no correlation of the principles of which we find. The same God we find in the Old Testament is the same God we find in the New Testament. Historically, all of God's people who strive for godly living have faced persecution. Cain and Abel. Abel was persecuted by Cain. We see it with Joseph. He was persecuted by Potiphar's wife after doing the right thing. We see King Hezekiah faced by persecution from Sennacherib. Who is this God in whom you trust? He's mocked. The prophets, all of them, face persecution for striving for righteousness, for God living, speaking and proclaiming it. Many of them killed for it. Under the period of Babylonian conquest, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, eating of food, certain foods, they all face persecution. Historically, God's people, when they, because the world is swimming a different way, and when the people of God strive for righteousness, they will face persecution. This is, I think, historically always been true. I think there's one person that, other than Christ, or the apostles, which we're very familiar with as well, that demonstrates this practice, I think, is King David, before he was king. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 
chapter 17. And as you turn there, like when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's life has flipped. I mean, when, when Samuel was looking for the new king who to replace Saul, whom God has appointed, because the people refused their king, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, it was, it was his response to this request is that, that he would give them a person after their own desires, which was Saul. Saul, we know, strove, strived for his own personal gains. Even when they were warned, they said they wanted one like him. And so God gave them one. But as time went on and Saul continued to rebel against the Lord and his instructions, Samuel went to appoint the new king by the direction of the Lord. And so when he went to Jesse's house, the father of David, he told Jesse, bring all your sons because I'm going to appoint from your family a new king for Israel. (laughs) By the time you get to 1 Samuel, like I've said already, David's life is flipped. But when it came to be appointed king, Jesse didn't even invite David because he was the runt of the family. He was left in the shepherd fields. And after Samuel sees all of Jesse's sons, he says, this is not all your sons. No, I have one in the field. (laughs) Didn't think he wanted the redhead. Um, And when Samuel saw David, he appointed him. And just in a matter of moments, David goes from being a shepherd boy, alone in the midst of the fields, he goes and he conquers Goliath, his famous line, as he stands before Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And his victory was profound. And so he goes from the the fields of the sheep, he gets anointed by Samuel, he is indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has conquered Goliath, and things just keep going up for David. He becomes the best friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. Seems like nothing is stopping him. He goes from living in the fields to living in Saul's palace. And everything that Saul gives David, David is super, super successful. Every battle he goes out, he wins. In fact, that Saul gives David a position over the army. Man, by the time you get to chapter 18, David has gone from the field to be anointed by by God, by the Holy Spirit, to be the future king of Israel. He's living with the king, his best friend is this king's son, and on top of all that, he marries Saul's daughter. Like, talk about change of lifestyle. And I want you, as we go through this, watch how David responds to the slander, the persecution, the jealousy of Saul. Because his success, David's, was so profound because the Lord was with him. You remember, David was called a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't Jesus. But there was something within David that marked him different in the way that he swam or walked in the life amidst Israel before Saul. And as David became so popular and so successful, Saul's joy of David began to become suspicious. Verse Chapter 18, verse 9. 
Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Why? Because the crowds would see David stroll into town and they would say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul couldn't have this. He became angry. In fact, he became so angry he was becoming troubled. And so he would sit in his palace and he would be tormented and David would serve him. And he'd come play his harp for, for Saul. And one of those times, look at verse 11, if you got your Bibles, 1 Samuel 18, verse 11. One of those times he was playing his harp for, for his king and Saul hurled the spear For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Think about that. Uh, Your king, David, is upset. Go play the harp. Well, last time I played for the harp, for the king, he threw the spear. Tell me, tell a warrior to exchange a spear with a spear. Two times this happens. And as this response, which David does not respond with vengeance or evil with evil, Saul's jealousy increases all the more. In fact, he uses his his daughter Micah as as bait to try to kill David. In chapter 19, Jonathan is, Saul attempts to, to shift Jonathan's mind towards David in chapter 19 verse 1 now Saul told Jonathan and his son and all of his servants to put David to death because he couldn't do it but Jonathan Jonathan, Saul's son greatly delighted in David everything uh, uh, begins through the jealousy of Saul to take place in David's life by the end of um, chapter 19 Saul has taken up to six times to kill David. How would you respond? Not only that, because David has found himself to be so successful in everything that he does, by the time you get to chapter 24, like David went from, let me remind you, David went from the, the fields to the palace. He went from shepherding sheep to ruling over the armies. He went from having sheep friends to the best friend, Jonathan, in the palace, married to the king's daughter. Within those chapters, what Saul did is he took his position over the army from him. He took his wife from him and gave her to another man. He took Jonathan from him. There's a point in which I think it's uh, chapter 22. David is fleeing for his life and his home is now in the belly of a cave. Literally has nothing. And Saul continues to pursue David, a man after God's own heart, for eight years. Now, why are we looking at David? Because I think he models Romans 12 for us. When you're persecuted, what do you do? God's people who live for righteous or strive for righteous living will be persecuted. And David... Eight years. Eight years. Everything lost. Wife, job. He doesn't have sheep to shepherd anymore. Then it happened. First Samuel chapter 24. 
This scene is remarkable. David, all he can do is he can hide. That's all he's, he's just trying to get by. And he finds himself hiding in a cave. Saul pursuing him with 3,000 men. Then it happened. Verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 3. You gotta love. This is, I think, why people, there's something in David that definitely reflects what Christ does for us on the cross. Bears our iniquity. Who do no, no, did no wrong. David models this, how God's people respond in light of persecution. He came to the sheepfolds. This is Saul on the way. And where there was a cave. And so Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The moment. Eight years. Lost everything. Verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day. We've been running for eight years. He's taken everything from you. This is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Here's your moment. His armies are outside the cave. Strike the man. Jacob's paraphrase. Then David arose, cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Like, come on. He took your wife. And you're, you're worried about his robe. I think David models how God's people respond. Like he's convicted that he brought a dishonor upon this king. Imagine, you could hear, she did this to you, or he did this to you. They're speaking into his ear, this is God's will. Verse 6. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed. God appointed him as king. And to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. So what did David do? He must have thought ahead. He had to have. And so he has to spend time persuading his friends to kill this man would have been wrong. Right? Look at verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words. Man, I know that they wanted to do it, and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. So Saul rose, left the cave, and went on his way. Verse 8. Now David rose and he went out of the cave and he called Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. What? He gives honor to the man who's taken his best friend, his wife, his position over armies, has made him live in a cave and run for eight years, serves him. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Now, I want you to see his theology here. 
Okay. Vengeance is mine. That's, what, that's not Jacob saying. That's God saying vengeance. It's mine. David believes this as well. Behold this day. Your eyes have seen that the Lord giving you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord. For he is the Lord's anointed. God appointed you king. Now my father see. Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe. And did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil. He didn't exchange evil with evil. Did he? But mercy or rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you. Though you were lying in wait for my life to take it. Notice Saul's response here in a moment. But before he gets this, I think he begins to teach Romans 12. May the Lord judge. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Why? Because vengeance is his. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? I'm a nobody. I'm the kid in the shepherd field. Yes, you've taken everything from me. The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. He was resting in the judgment of God. And so therefore, he pleads out of mercy. So, so in some sense, David is willing, like God's people all historically throughout time, are willing to suffer wrongfully. That's hard. Let the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul. Now, now listen. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He burned his forehead with coals. Kindness and mercy. And he said to David, you, you are more righteous than I. For you have dealt with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You didn't exchange blow for blow. You have declared today that you have done good to me. That the Lord deliver me into your hand. And yet you did not kill me. You can see this model of character throughout scripture. This is just one of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The prophets... Jesus, the greatest example, who did no wrong. Who are willing to suffer and not exchange evil with evil, but with mercy. There's a God who does see all things. And we're reminded of this, even in Romans chapter 2. Like, we know where vengeance comes from. And those of the beloved are fearful of it, no doubt. For he will render to each person according to his deeds. That's the promise. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor, immorality, eternal life. We are in the period of mercy. 
And we are the ambassadors of the one who has granted us mercy. And until the vengeance come, the day of the Lord, Paul says, do not, do not, never. Oh, I did that backwards. Never, never, do not. Exchange evil with evil. Never take your own revenge. Do not be overcome by evil. Verse 21, Romans chapter 12, but overcome evil with God. Point three. I've gone long, so I'll make this quick. God's people, just like David and throughout all scriptures, modeled perfectly in Christ, are willing to suffer even when we're wronged. And I would say, not only do I need to be reminded of this, but our children and our friends. Why we gather regularly to consider these things is because I think we need to be reminded of these things. And the hour in which it comes, I think we need encouragement to remember these things. Don't do it. Don't do it. Evil only breeds more evil. Be merciful. Plead with you. Be forgiving and gracious and kind. So far as it depends with you, be at peace. Do whatever is required of you to extend that to others. And if it can't be accomplished, if you find yourself in the face of one who's unreasonable, Peter encourages the church, and I would end with this. For you have been called for this purpose. Christians have a category of being willing to be wrong. This is what Peter's addressing. Since Christ also suffered for you, he's left you an example for you to follow in his steps. Mind you, he committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, did not revile and into return. He did not exchange evil with evil. Willing to suffer. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself, the fruit of that, bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And if there's any greater opportunity to express the mercy of God to the world around us, which is swimming a different way, it is to suffer without exchanging evil with evil. Let's pray. Lord, I think that these words